Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the status of HIT, or Health Information Technology Adoption and Use. With me to discuss the topic is Ms. Christine Bechtel. Christine, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Christine's uh, bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Let's, as always, begin with some background. Compared to other large economic sectors, healthcare has substantially lagged in the adoption and use of information technology. However, with substantial government support beginning in 2009, the healthcare industry has made substantial progress in the adoption of HIT. Per the CDC, today over 50% of physicians use an electronic health record. In fact, in larger practices, that is 11 or more physicians, 86% of doctors use an EHR. Per the American Hospital Association today, 44% of hospitals have at least a basic EHR, and that's up from 9% in 2008. There are or remain, however, substantial challenges in HIT use. For example, again, the American Hospital Association argues that only slightly more than a third of hospitals and only 11% of critical access hospitals meet stage one meaningful use. And no providers have yet, they say, met stage two meaningful use. And we'll get into a discussion of what exactly meaningful use is. There are numerous interoperability issues as well, and also concerns that HIT may not meet the promise of reducing healthcare utilization and costs. For example, a recent report by six Senate Republicans titled Reboot questioned whether EHRs may actually increase healthcare costs by further enabling the practice of coding creep or upcoding, also now termed cloning, whereby a physician cuts and pastes the same exam findings for multiple patients. Having said all that, with me again to discuss the status of HIT is again Christine Bechtel. Christine, let's start with what substantially accelerated HIT adoption, and that is the High Tech Act, which was a provision of the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA. What was the High Tech Tech Act? Why is it important? Sure. So again, thanks for having me. Um, High Tech really laid the foundation for some fundamental change in our healthcare delivery system. Um, It was actually called High Tech as short for Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health. And the reason that there is a focus on economic and clinical health is that there was a recognition by Congress that the High Tech Act, you know, could improve healthcare, but it could also create jobs. And in fact, was part of a job creation piece of stimulus um, uh, legislation. That's what RO was. That's exactly what it was. Um, And so, you know, there had been a lot of efforts for um, many years, actually, in Congress to. Um, draft health IT legislation because stakeholders, um, you know, repeatedly told Congress that we've struggled for decades to get a majority of um, physicians and hospitals and other institutions to use electronic records, and yet we believed that even absent larger payment reform, they could save money um, and certainly improve um, healthcare quality. Uh, so. There had been efforts for many years on both the House and the Senate side um, to draft legislation. They had lots of common elements, um, and uh, one of them was a recognition that we probably needed to put some incentives on the table 
for electronic health records um, to really drive their adoption, much in the way that we did with electronic prescribing or even public reporting of hospital cost and quality data, where we started with a voluntary program and some incentive to report. In the case of um, hospital public reporting, they wouldn't get a market basket update if they didn't. In the case of e-prescribing, it was similar, very you know, incentive money. Um, and then ended it with some penalties, right? So in, in the electronic prescribing program, that was pretty successful. And so Congress took that model and basically said, okay, we're going to give you up to you know $27 billion um, in incentives to eligible hospitals and what they called eligible professionals, meaning mostly doctors and some nurse practitioners and dentists are eligible too. Um, and they essentially said, okay, here, here's some incentive money, and then if you don't have an electronic health record uh, by 2015, there will be some penalties involved. That was probably... Under, the, med, med, under Medicare reimbursement. Yes, thank you, under Medicare reimbursement. Um, it is a program that is targeted specifically to Medicare and Medicaid providers, although Medicaid providers wouldn't face a penalty. Um, so... Um, there was a provision in high tech that that basically said here's some incentives here's some penalties and you need to use an electronic health record in a meaningful way um, and this is the meaningful use issue this is the origin of meaningful use Congress smartly doesn't decide what meaningful use is they're not going to get that detailed in a, in a piece of legislation and so um, they set up a structure through CMS and through the newly codified Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology that they would put the details around um, what you had to do as a, as a provider in order to get this incentive money. Um, interestingly though, HITECH did a couple of other things that I think are important. One is it set up a process through two federal advisory committees that play a very significant and influential role today. Um, one is the Health IT Policy Committee and then its companion, the Health IT Standards Committee. They're both um, uh, federal advisory groups governed by the Federal Advisory Committee Act, or FACA, uh, which meet uh, with lots of openness and transparency and there's public comment periods and uh, they're about 20 to 25 uh, for example, members of the Health IT Policy Committee. Uh, we advocated for, as a consumer organization, um, through the National Partnership for Women and Families, we advocated for three spots that would be reserved for patient and family or consumer organization representatives, which we got and which I currently hold one of those spots. Um, it also set up a, an appointment process for those committees that would be a little bit more independent and insulated from the political whims. Um, and we felt that that was important um, because there was, it was very important for policy to be set and then technology and standards to follow policy. We had started to see in the environment many instances where, and we see this in other areas of our lives today, the technology was really able to do things um, that no one had ever thought of and that there was no governing law, um, you know, like privacy and security law you know, HIPAA being a little bit older now, didn't really govern the kind of uses that we started to see. And we, we felt that it was important that we reverse that trend. And so we did two things in the law, or we advocated for two things. One was to bifurcate policy and standards. And then the other was to have it have some kind of a sequential order. 
The reason that's important today is because the policy committee does the first um, level work in figuring out what the requirements for the meaningful use program should be. Um, and then the standards committee follows that and says, okay, based on how you want the technology used, these are the technical standards uh, that need to be part of the EHR in order for it to work in the way you envision. That triggers a rulemaking process. Um, and that was the other thing that high tech set up, which was not just an incentive structure, but a structure for certifying that electronic health records are in fact capable of doing what we're asking them to do and that they're doing it in a way that uses common standards and really begins to get at this issue of interoperability that we're all hearing so much about today. So they have become a really central lever for driving interoperability and standardization um, as well. The last thing that I think the High Tech Act did that was also really notable um, is that it created some, for the first time since HIPAA was passed, um, it established some changes to privacy and security law that we still haven't finalized. We're still in a rulemaking process for some of them, um, but, but for others have been finalized. So there was an omnibus rule last year, for example. Um, and those have been really important protections because we needed the policy to kind of catch up with the, with the technology. But taken together, you know, if I step back a level, I would say that the High Tech Act has really been essential to laying that fundamental foundation that the healthcare system needs to begin to move away from fee-for-service healthcare, where we focus on you know outputs and throughputs, um, and to begin to create the capacity to focus on things like care coordination and health outcomes, where we need the system to go. Um, and also, by the way, creating a much more uh, rich set of data that is now being used to foster some real innovation um, in the marketplace for consumers and for providers. Okay, great. Thank you. So one takeaway is, of course, the EHR has to be certified. The second is you have to meet meaningful use criteria to be advantaged under the Medicare reimbursement system. Correct. So let me ask you about uh, meaningful use more specifically in that. In my opening, I noted AHA's comment that only a third of hospitals and 11% of critical access hospitals are actually meeting stage one meaningful use. That's contested. Yeah, well, I think, I'm hoping it's outdated and not contested. But just this week, um, HHS released their latest set of data um, based on uh, the meaningful use program data. And for the first time, we are at um, a little more than 80% of hospitals who have successfully met the first stage of meaningful use. And we are at just over half of eligible professionals, in other words, mostly physicians, are now meeting meaningful use. So we are really literally at a tipping point. And that has been because of the Meaningful Use Program and because of certification. And it is the first time in history we've ever been here, despite decades and decades of efforts to you know, encourage physicians to adopt EHRs when there wasn't a business case to do so, to set the standards, you know, and, and fight the fights over which standard was better, you know, and get those into the same electronic health records. It's really been um, just the Meaningful Use Program and its certification dimension that have gotten us this far in a standardized way that is now much more reliable um, in terms of creating an infrastructure for delivery system change. 
And your point, or your comment about the tipping point, this is the Secretary of HHS's exact comment last week where she said, we have reached a tipping point in the adoption of electronic health records per her announcement last week on uh, the recent, most recent data. Just so we're clear, there's stage one meaningful use, two, and there's talk of three, so just explain how this sure. is going to roll out. So there were originally, um, the, the stages of meaningful use are actually infinite. Right. There are um, some, in, there's incentives and then there's penalties. And so the further you get into the sort of penalty phases after 2015, we haven't quite thought through, you know, those dimensions um, in terms of phasing. But um, I, in terms of the incentive phases, there are three primary stages of incentives. Um, and the first was really, that's where we are now. We're in stage one. It's active. Um, it, physicians and hospitals are meeting it. Their EHRs are capable of doing everything that they're required to do. And the first stage was designed to just focus on electronic data capture. That's the foundation for using your system to do other very cool things like clinical decision support or uh, provider order entry or electronic prescribing. You've got to have data. So this stage one was actually, in my humble opinion, fairly basic. And I think the fact that we've had such high success rates in meeting, it shows us that it, it wasn't um, you know, too advanced. Not to say that it wasn't a lot of work for docs and hospitals out there. It required a lot of workflow changes. It required thinking about um, you know, data capture very differently. But that was really stage one, basic data capture. Stage two goes live for hospitals in this October coming up, and it starts to go live in January for eligible professionals. Stage two is supposed to be focused more on, okay, now you got the data in your system. How are you going to use it to exchange with other parties so you can facilitate more care coordination, uh, you know, talking to your other docs in your medical trading area, for example, and giving consumers for the first time widespread access to their own electronic health record, on, I should say on a widespread basis, um, and, and to the data that lives in it. So it, that's really the focus of stage two. Stage three is under discussion now, um, and the reason it's under discussion now is because the market needs time. The vendors need to be able to code their systems, update their systems, you know, get them out into the field. Docs have to implement the upgrades, etc. Stage three is really designed to be focused on outcomes. So the you know kind of escalator, if you will, data capture, data exchange, improving health outcomes. Um, that's where we will see, I think, more and more of a focus on what we all sort of thought to be meaningful use, which is really how we, at the end of the day, um, you know, based on quality measures and measures of cost, really improving healthcare um, in this country. It's also timed, uh, I think, interestingly, in that because of the Affordable Care Act, stage three will be happening as stage two is a little bit at a time when more and more models of new models or different models of care like accountable care like patient-centered medical home are really beginning to proliferate and those are the very models that need the functions of this kind of information technology and they need the data from these systems in order to base payment on so it'll be very interesting to see i think how the world changes um, but stage three isn't projected to go live for about, you know, two more years. Okay, thank you. You did mention HIPAA, and you did mention stage one moreover about digitizing health information, but conveying it or making it interoperable is, is another challenge. Mm -hmm. And so let me ask you about the, 
an HIE, a health information exchange, and this has been a particularly daunting mm-hmm. problem. So, yeah, and it's been a daunting problem, again, for decades. Um, and I think the same lesson that we're learning in electronic health records applies to health information exchange, whether you're talking about the verb of actually moving, you know, exchanging data, or whether you're talking about what a lot of people use as a noun, HIE, the noun, or the entity that is trying to facilitate health information exchange on a local or a regional level. Um, the, the lesson we're learning in electronic health records is that if you don't have a business case, it won't happen on any kind of a noticeable scale that is enough to make a difference. Now that in meaningful use, there is an impetus and there is more of a business case because docs can get under Medicare up to about $45,000 per doctor over the course of the three stages and about 65000 under the Medicaid program and they're going to avoid penalties, at least under Medicare. So now there's more of a business case, right? So health, you know, looking at health information exchange, because of our fee-for-service payment system, we don't um, you know, tend to reward the very things that information exchange produces, which is you know, avoiding duplicate tests. We actually pay for tests, and duplicate ones are just the same as any other test, right? So um, we don't pay for the health outcomes that occur as a result of more coordinated care. And yet that's exactly what health information exchange is designed to produce. So it's not a mystery um, that we've been struggling this with, with this for decades. And you know, we started with, in probably most recent memory, the, the CHINs, right, the community health information networks um, back in the 70s that had started and they didn't quite get off the ground or go anywhere, you know, in the 70s and 80s, I want to say. And, and, you know, coming fast forward to probably six or so, actually more than that now, probably about eight years ago, when the country had its very first national coordinator for health information technology, Dr. David Brailer, who put forward a vision for health information exchange centered on regional health information exchange organizations. Rios. Rios, exactly. Um, and that was a model of let a thousand flowers bloom. You guys figure it out. You innovate. You do what's right for your community. You create the business agreements. You know, let's see what models um, come to bear. And that that approach has really struggled to also get off the ground. We, the policy committee, the Health IT Policy Committee, held a hearing. Um, I think it was back in uh, February, where we looked at health information exchange and tried to understand what was happening in the market today because now we have a confluence of events, right? It's not just there's some Rios out there, although they still exist. We also have meaningful use. So we have more more clinicians able to connect potentially to a health information exchange. And we have more of a business reason to do so through ACOs or the patient-centered medical home model, et cetera, or bundled payments for hospitals or whatever the case may be. And what came out of that hearing was essentially exactly that that the areas where we're seeing an organized information exchange infrastructure really um, rooted and taking hold are those where there is an ACO or some other business reason for data exchange. But I will say that one of the more interesting developments is a recognition that it doesn't always have to be about some single entity exchanging data and facilitating a network or even a network of networks, that there's real value um, in point-to-point information sharing. We use the fax machine that way today in doc Mm -hmm. offices, right? So um, HHS invested some money in creating um, an open source 
publicly available set of standards and services and tools that anybody could use as really what is like secure Gmail, but for docs. That um, effort, which was called uh, the direct protocol or direct standards, direct has really taken off in some interesting ways. It's been incorporated as part of electronic health records in certain vendor cases. Um, it's been you know, piloted and used in the field to connect clinicians. There's work now to actually get direct addresses for patients and families so they can be copied by providers with things like care summaries. So that's been, I think, an exciting recognition because when we think about the infrastructure and the trust that it takes to do that, it's already there. It's leveraging the systems that we have today. It's just that instead of knowing you know, the fax number, you got to know the email address. The next step is to create a directory of email addresses so it's much easier, like a phone book, to find the trading partner that you're looking for and to incorporate their address in your record so that the process of gathering and sending a summary becomes seamless with a push of a button. So I think there are more models of information exchange emerging today than we've seen before, and I think that's offering us a lot of hope. I can't leave this subject without asking to identify some communities that you think are doing this well. Sure. So HealthBridge in Ohio is a really good example, and they were um, a Rio. They may have been a Chin before that, but I don't think so. They they you know were part of the kind of earlier um, incarnation, and I think they've done a terrific job of adapting. You know, you have the Inf- Indiana Health Information Exchange, which you know similarly has grown by leaps and bounds over the years. You also have some really interesting work led by John Halamka um, uh, with Partners Healthcare in Boston and Brigham and Women's, um, who are have more activity because of the Massachusetts laws uh, and their delivery system change initiatives. Um, and they're a little bit more advanced than the rest of the country because their laws were passed a little bit earlier. And they've really begun to do some very interesting things where it's like a subscription model. You know, you pay like $5 a month and you can be part of this service. And, and that business case for sustainability has always been a challenge. So, to, you know, it's very interesting. Pay to play. To see. Yeah. And, and, but for the first time, you actually have people who are willing to pay to play because there's a benefit to them. And, you know, they're part of an ACO. They need to hold costs down. They need to improve quality. Their bottom line depends on it. So once the financial incentives become aligned, then you really start to see some traction and, and some, some innovation. So, you know, it'll be curious and, and interesting to see what happens there. Okay. We have time to turn to the last and probably the most substantive uh, issue, and that's HIT, as you noted and we discussed, has promised for decades to improve safety and quality, reduce utilization and costs. And before we started uh, recording, we discussed um, the uh, 2008 RAND report versus the CBO score. RAND came out that year and said that in the 10-year budget window, in the 10-year budget window, HIT may actually save the federal government upwards of 80 billion dollars. And then Peter Orzog followed with the CBO study, saying, "Well, not even close at about 10 or 12 billion dollars." Yeah. So let's ask about uh, before we go to maybe some safety or quality issues. Let's talk about the cost issue. What do, what do you see so far to date on how? If, uh, HIT is affecting reducing utilization, lowering costs? Well, I don't think that we have good data yet to know for sure. And I, and I think that is one real failure in, in the policy oversight of the Meaningful Use Program is to set up, as far as I've seen, 
you know, there, I think there's been a real failure to set up some metrics that we could track and figure out what's directly attributable to the increasing use of meaningful uh, or of electronic health records. That said, from a research perspective, it's going to be hard to set that system up and really look at, at tracking it because you don't know what's just the EHR, what's the EHR in combination with the local ACO or, you know, some incentive program that the health plan has or some other factor, PCMH or whatever. Um, and so it becomes difficult to try to tease this out. Medicare spending, though, has been ri- falling and, and certainly not rising at the pace that we um, have seen in recent years. I would like to think that EHRs are a big part of that, but we don't know. Number, so that's number one. Number two, we're very early in this process. Um, stage one, as I said, was designed to really be about data capture. And I think there are certainly cost savings that can come with that. But until we change the larger fee-for-service infrastructure, the volume of cost savings you know, is going to be depressed, although I believe there are some and will be some. We've seen some great pockets um, uh, where providers have said to us, and their providers at small practices or at big integrated health systems, where they have said, you know, I thought, so for example, it's a, a great piece by Tom Friedman this morning, I, uh, who cited, by the way, a, a provider in Plainville, Kansas, uh, who said, I thought my colorectal cancer screening rate was really terrific. Turned out when I looked at the data in my EHR, it was only 43%. I thought, oh goodness. And we implemented some system changes. We got it up to, um, I think it was 90 or over 90%. And we detected three cases of cancer early and earlier than we would have otherwise. So we have lots of anecdotal evidence. We've got anecdotal evidence from Hurricane Sandy where people said, you know, hey, without the EHR, our community health center would have never been able to get operational and help you know, at the local level to the extent that we did. So we have moving stories, we have, you know, anecdotal evidence, um, but we haven't put all the pieces yet together, which I think we need to do, no doubt. Um, But the other thing that I would say on this, so CBO said, when high tech was being drafted, they said that in the absence of larger payment reform legislation, because that's the big driver here, the savings would be 0.3% from EHRs. Um, I think we can blow that out of the water, number one. But let's just hold that as our, you know, as our number because we can't expect EHRs alone to be a panacea without really looking at the way the system is incentivized to operate as a whole. However, so there were hearings in Congress in 2010. So after R had passed, when Meaningful Use Stage 1 was crafted but not quite off the ground, or maybe it's very early off the ground. I don't even think it was. But anyway, um, CMS actuaries testified to Congress, and they said, um, we think we will reach the 50% EHR adoption point somewhere in 2015. And yet here we are today in 2013, early in 2013, and we've surpassed it. We've got more than 80% of hospitals and just over 50% of docs who've adopted EHRs. So I think, you know, again, that offers us a lot of hope um, that, that EHRs can really pay off, but it is not the technology itself, right? And we've known that for a long time. Technology alone just automates current processes, and if our current processes aren't very good, then we just get to, you know, do the wrong thing faster, so to speak. It's really incumbent on the hard work of providers um, and their staff to do the workflow change 
that makes the EHR work for them and makes their care better, you know, um, regardless of the EHR. And so, you know, big kudos to all of those who have been the first to go through the Meaningful Use Program and to really do um, care processes in a different way. A lot of people are saying and complaining about how difficult Meaningful Use is. And I think it is much more of a function of this is what happens when you make big technology-enabled changes to systems that have been in existence for a long time. It's hard, and we know it. But patients and families are beginning to see some incredible benefits um, that they would not have had before. And I think it's going to completely change the nature of our system going forward. So it's a lot of work now, and it's hard, uh, but it'll be worth it. You know, excellent point. If you don't change practices, you're just doing the wrong thing faster exactly. with technology. Your point about Thomas Friedman, that was Saturday in the New York Times, and the title of the editorial was Obamacare's Other Surprise. Yes, thank so, you. So excellent point. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're at our time boundary. So, Christine, I'd like to have you back in the, in the future. We could talk about what further progress we've made, but for now, thank you so much. Thank you, David.